0: take your seats thank you so much Sean Uh, there's been a lot of sickness has been going around and it's great that you've got some people standing with you singing with you it gives us even a greater opportunity to make a joyful noise unto the Lord Uh, as we come to the to the message today I always begin with the word cloud I want to be able to remind people that you are at New Covenant Church where we are not ashamed uh, just like Paul is not ashamed of the gospel we are not ashamed of the gospel and where do we get this good news it's found in the word of God, and that's why when you look at the word cloud, you'll see clearly that the Bible is central for us, and I pray that it would be central in your life, that it would not just be something that collects, uh, or that you open up, uh, you know, on the weekends, but it'd be something that you would cherish every day, uh, cherish something that you would hide in your heart that you might not sin against God. The Bible has the words of eternal life uh, because it tells us the good news about Jesus Christ. And as I open up the scriptures today, you're going to hear the gospel again. Because our goal at the church is to communicate this gospel to us and then through us to our neighbors and then through our missionaries to the world uh, and even through some of us to the world as some of us will be going to the Dominicans uh, in March uh, so that the wonders of God's grace in Christ might be known. Let us now open our scriptures up. Turn in your Bibles to page 1194 if you have the Pew Bibles, or if you're following along. Let's reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible scriptures as given in the originals. We'll be looking at the gospel, uh, excuse me, the epistle that was written by Paul to the Christians that were in Rome. He's writing to people. Obviously, he knows some of them because you can see in chapter 16, he lists their names. But he's never been there. He's he's never walked in their shoes over in Rome, the capital city of the empire where the Caesars would be. But let us reverently look at these texts of Scripture, verses 8 through 15. Um, This is where we focus on Paul. First, I thank my God... Through Jesus Christ, for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'd like to reread that text for you as, as you sink in. This is the text at the beginning of Paul's epistle. And a lot of times these don't get a lot of time. Even as I was looking through different commentaries, a lot of people don't focus on this. But the theme that you'll see today is the idea of Paul's desire. And see if you can pick up on on his testimony of what he wanted. And uh, so after he has just greeted them in verse 7, to those who are in Rome, loved and called of God, grace to you, peace from God and from the Father and even from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given his introductory. Now he launches in. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. But thus far, I have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of those Gentiles. But I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and even to the foolish. So I am eager. I am so eager to preach the gospel to you, also who are over in Rome. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll take the reading of the word and especially the preaching of the word and that you will make it an effectual means of salvation to all who hear, for faith comes by hearing the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There is something very unusual in this passage. You don't often find it in scripture uh, I think it's, and and if you do find it, it's rarely linked to positive teaching. Well, what is it you're saying? Well, it is within these few verses of the opening chapter, we nearly encounter 20 personal pronouns or personal references to Paul and what's going on inside his mind and his heart. I think 17 is what I literally counted up, the personal pronouns I and mine, and even we. Why is this positive? Most of the time, you would think that that's a negative thing to be self-centered or to be... Uh, we might even accuse them of being narcissistic or something. But there is a positive take on this. And, and when you see it, it's almost like um, that God is giving us a ticket to get on board a ride and look inside of his soul. To see what's going on inside this mind, the mind of this man of faith. We're to see when we look at Paul and what he's feeling and what he wants... We are able to see it, God at work in him. It almost seems unusual that we get to see what's going on inside of his heart. We see the motives. We see his new actions. We see his new agendas. You know, the reason why I say this seems unusual is because if you were to do this exercise today and just pick two or three people that that are that, that you... Uh, a cost each week and and just do an evaluation look at their life journeys take a glance into their motives and and see uh if they have an obedient faith you know it could be somebody that's up front in church it could be somebody that you drive in the car home with it could be a neighbor it could be just one of your friends you talk on the phone when you look at them and you try to evaluate their motives and their passions and you see it, how, how do you know what their motives are? You know, if anybody ever to, to watch some of those, uh, those podcasts that to try to solve mysteries or to solve crimes, just like that awful one that was out, in, out west with the four people that were butchered, it's terrible. But when they, when they actually try to, to, to discover who did it, then the next question always is, is why? To try to understand people, it's pretty disappointing. Because when you see what's going on behind the curtain, it's not usually as beautiful as they want it to look like when they put on their makeup and when they put on their best best face. Our attempts to see the genuineness of heart and soul may be disappointing. In Matthew 7, Jesus already taught it even before the crucifixion. And he told people in Matthew 7... ...that not all people that say, Lord, Lord... ...are going to be going to heaven. In fact, Jesus actually said, be careful... you know, ...because their, their lives don't match up with their, with, their, uh, with their speech... ...with their facade. False prophets will claim to be righteous. They only know about God, but they really don't know God. So be careful when you look at people's motives. And yet here in this text... In this great literary work of, of Romans, uh, we are exposed where we are exposed to great doctrines, some deep things. You know, there's, there's so many questions that Paul answers when he writes to Rome. And yet, it all begins after he gives us this insight into what's going on inside of him. I don't want us to overlook the deep insights that Paul gives in his self-disclosure. So, if you look, I believe that you will see a lot... And sometimes what you see will be encouraging as it, as it matches up with your experience. And the things that don't match up, we might need to pray through and seek God's strength and grace. And we'll be asking some questions today to cultivate a greater clarification, to do as Paul says in the text, to bring about, as he says in verse 5, an obedient faith. In fact, I can read it for you. Though we, through Jesus, we have received grace and an apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. It's really interesting that when he is wanting, and his purpose is to see people have an obedient faith, a faith that obeys Christ, to have a changed life. That's what he's asking. Uh, the key concept here that, uh, that I was amazed with is the idea of longing. If you could bring up the slide about uh, the Greek word that for long, uh, if you can see it there, uh, there are quite a few different words that capture the idea of desire or want. I think there's only just, just a handful of them, that, especially that Paul uses to be able to show this Greek word, which is epipotheo. Um, and it basically is, as I explain it in English, the idea of a want are, is to have a desire or, po- or, or possess to do, or, or a desire to possess or to do. It's to wish for. And uh, it's, it's interesting that in the, in the Old Testament, Psalm 23, the word want is there. He says, The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want, or I won't be in want. In other words, I won't be having a desire to have more. Because I'll have what I need. In this particular case in the New Testament, we're finding that he has a strong desire for something with an implication of a need. He is longing for this. And it's not just that he likes the idea, but there is a need for it. That's why it's longing. You can't wait for it to be fulfilled. This great expectation that you have. And it's seen in multiple places in the New Testament. That's pretty interesting, though, for us to recognize what is longing. I think we've all experienced it, so we have a sense of it. There is that, uh, for Christmas time, we sang, There is a come thou long expected Jesus. There's that desire for us to, to finally get what's coming. We're hopeful for it. All those words are kind of connected to it. But I'm asking a few more questions to get us to understand. Does God really want us to know what Paul wants? Well, what's the answer to that? Well, if we're understanding what Paul's longing for and it's it's included in Scripture, then I can tell you that God does want us to know. He wants us to pay attention to some of the things that are going on in his apostle. Because I believe the apostle communicates the gospel not only by what he writes, but by also, as we say over on the three things there, by by what to learn, to love, and to live. It's not only what comes off his lips, but also what he loves. And it's also by what he uh, lives and practices. God does want us to know... And, and then I was going to say, how is it that Paul wants these gospel things now? You see, it's pretty noble. You know, if, if, if we were to do a biography of your life and we're going to write a chapter right now about the things that you want right now, what would be in that chapter? You know, I think it's safe to say you'd want answers to prayer. And you'd want them right now. You know, you wouldn't want to wait any longer. I mean, we've, even in the pastoral prayer, there's things that we're asking God for. You know, we pray that people wouldn't be sick. We pray that there would be a revival in the land. We pray that people would get healing from, from as, as man as praying for a liver. But there's others who are praying for, for uh, eyesight to improve with, with glaucoma and all those kind of things. There's others who are going through just broken relationships. We would pray for all kinds of things. How is it that Paul has these noble desires, these noble longings, when it wasn't always that way. Together, we're going to examine this personal text today, and we'll see what God has purposed for us to see. And then there's three things that I want you to see if you're following along with the fourth point supplement. You can see the priority of focus being given to God. The priority of our focus is given to God. We're not going to be looking at the people. We're going to be looking vertically to God. And I hope that you'll be able to walk away from that. That's always what we should do, is our eyes should be fixed on him. Just like when Peter was going to walk on water, when he did walk on water, where was he looking? He was looking at God. And as soon as his eyes went somewhere else, uh, his body also went somewhere else. Now, secondly, I want you to see the appeal for credibility that is linked to God's knowledge. It's an appeal for credibility. That Paul is actually writing to the people in Rome and he says, I, got, I, I want you to know that, that what I'm saying has validity. And thirdly, I want you to see the new longings that he has. I want you to, to be able to c- compare them with the longings that you and I have. As we ask the question, did God really call me to these same kind of things? Okay, first thing if we're going to see what God wants us to see, see the priority of focus being given to God and why does Paul thank God? So in verse 8, this is where our our text says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. Okay, that's what he's, the focus point. He says, without going any further, you know, I've just introduced a greeting. I've, I've talked to you about the normal greetings that we do when I write the churches. But he says, first, priority. The thing I want to do first without any any other distraction, before I get into anything else, before I dive into the deep things of the gospel, he says, I want to thank my mother. No. He wants to thank his heavenly father. I thank my God. God is the focused. And I believe God is honored, God is to be praised, God is to be thanked. And when you start to realize this is where we start, you will always get to a better destination if you stay on this main highway. Look up from whence comes our help. Our help comes from the Lord. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. He's just mentioned Jesus previously in the introduction, he's talked about Jesus being the Lord. He's also talked about Jesus being his master. And that's why I want you to be able to see why he is focused on God rather than on the people is because God gets the credit. God is supposed to get all the glory. First, God is to be honored for starting a work at Rome. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So he said he thanks God for the people there. And where are they? They are in Rome. They are in the capital city of the Roman Empire. And this is where they had all of the... Um, it's basically like New York City for us. Or you might say Washington, D.C. It was one of those megaplexes plexes where, where all kinds of people... A lot of travel was taking place and lots of ideas were being advanced. And ironically, there were a lot of gods that were being promoted. Uh, Rome is quite an interesting place. But here... He starts off by saying, I want to thank God that you're there in Rome. So what is the focus? Is it on the people in Rome? No, the focus is on God who put the people in Rome. And you might say, well, how in the world did they even get there? Paul doesn't get any credit for starting the church in Rome, does he? No. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, you're going to find that the reason why... That, that, uh, ...that there was a church in Rome... ...appears to be that at the day of Pentecost... ...when Peter stood up to preach... ...when the Holy Spirit's power was unleashed... ...as was promised from the prophet Joel... ...that God was going to... ...with special revelation... ...he was going to send out his apostles... ...and they were going to proclaim the risen Christ... ...and it was at that Acts 2 meeting... ...that there were some visitors... ...from... ...Rome. If they were visitors from Rome... What does that tell you? Do you think that they moved to Jerusalem? No, the way the text reveals, and Luke tells us the account, is that they were only in visiting in Jerusalem during this time, and they were going to be going back home to Rome. So it's very interesting that when you understand some of the things that are going on in Rome, I think I can read it for you that uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, He mentions that from Egypt and other parts of Libya, even over to Cyrene, there were visitors from Rome. And then in verse 11, it explains what happened to the visitors in Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. Do you see how God's in focus? God is the one who is, is being, the, the gospel is being communicated to these people that are visiting from Rome. And verse 12 says, they were all amazed and they were perplexed, saying to one another, what does all this mean? They're trying to figure it all out. But others mocked and they said, these people must be drunk. They're filled with new wine or something. But the folks that were visiting from Rome ended up going back. And I think they told others who told others who told others. And by the time Paul is writing this this epistle to the people that are in Rome, there's there's more than one or two. It's more than just a tiny little pocket of people. There's a a number of folks, even inside of Caesar's household. And Paul is quite interesting that he wants to give God the credit for starting the church at Rome. Uh, God is also to be praised that their witness in Rome is noticed throughout the world. Now, how do you think that people in Rome got the message out to people in Greece and in Turkey and in Syria and in Israel and in Egypt? How do you think they got the message out? Do you think they did a group email through MailChimp? You know, maybe, maybe they got an interview with the New York Times, right? Or, or no, let me modernize a little bit. Maybe they got a, a tweet uh, from Twitter, that that was sent out to to millions of people. Of course, you guys already have given up on that idea. How in the world did this message get out? And the message was that the people in Rome, the the people that are gathered that know God, these people, their their testimony is known around the world. Well, I can tell you that how it often happened in those days, is that since Rome was kind of like the hub of all, and, and all the spokes of the wheel went out from Rome, you know, they say all the Roman roads, uh, well, people would get on ships and they would go to different places, uh, but people would travel and they'd always do a visit in Rome. And when they came to Rome, somehow or other, the folks that came to Rome heard about this, this group of believers. And, and how in the world would they hear about it? it must have been quite an interesting witness that these people in Rome had. I don't imagine that they were just sitting on comfortable couches in their homes. I imagine that these people in Rome were actually more like candles that were bright. They were not hidden under a bushel. Because somehow or other, when people would go to Rome or when people from the Roman group would leave, they would always be speaking about what was going on among the believers there in Rome. And everybody in the world had heard about, hey, there's people in Rome that believe in Jesus. And the third point about this priority on getting God the credit is God is to be thanked for the faith in the believers in Rome. It was genuine. It was real. And that's why if you look at verse 5 again, Paul says, though Through Jesus we have received grace and an apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith that there is a faith that actually has works connected to it. There is an obedience of faith, a faith that sees the truth and does the truth. James picks that up in the earlier epistle when he wrote, show me your faith by your works. And here at the beginning of Romans, he's actually saying that you have an obedience to God because you see God with the spiritual eyes of faith. And once you see what God's agenda is, you obey it. It's very, very interesting that, uh, that this language is used. Ironically, they're not the only believers who, whose message were spread around. In Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 8-10, uh, Paul has the same counsel to those who lived in Thessalonica. He says in verse 8, for not, only, uh, for, "...for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't even need to say anything." It's really kind of cool when people's faith is on display. It really is. Now, I told you that the priority of focus is to thank God that this is happening. Because if you take God out of the equation, what do you have? You have a club. You have a group. You have people leaning on their own understanding, doing what they want to do. But when God is in the midst of it, where two or three are gathered in his name, God is there and God is shaping these people in Rome. And interestingly enough, they're not deep in their doctrines, but they're pretty smart. They're living in the capital city. And why does Paul write this 16 chapter epistle to them? Because they need a little help. Maybe you might say they need a lot of help. Maybe they need some major clarification because there was some doctrinal error. There were some people who were mixing some of their thoughts in with what they had heard. And so the word of God, special revelation is being given to them and praise God that it has. So in summary, that first point is we focus on God so that God gets all the credit. Now, the second thing that we're supposed to see in this text is we see an appeal for credibility linked to God's knowledge. Now, if you follow along with me, you can see this in point. Uh, In in verses 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10 begin by saying, For God is my witness. In other words, I'm appealing to God. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Without ceasing, I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So in verses 9 and 10, you can see this appeal for credibility. And, and who else can you appeal to to be able to say, hey, this is true? Now, in, in the old days, you know, if you went to school and you, excuse me, if you didn't go to school one day and you had to go, the, you know, go to school the next day, what did you have to take with you in order to not be counted absent or to not be counting zeros? You had to have a note. And of course, when we got up in the high school, it wasn't good enough just to have a note from mom. You had to have a doctor's excuse. You know what I'm talking about. Why would you have to have a doctor's excuse? Because when you're getting a little bit older, it almost seems as if you manipulate the system by just getting mom to sign the piece of paper. You know, it it doesn't mean the same amount because you don't see the credibility because most of us just want it to go away as if it didn't happen. The apostle here is writing to the people in Rome and what he wants... It's not only for God to get all the credit, but now he wants God to be his witness and say, hey, you guys over in Rome, you got to get the whole story. And so you have this appeal for a, a type of, of transparency. And when I followed along in this particular text, I was pretty amazed that um, he says, God can vouch for me. Now, in, in the fourth point, I asked the question would you want God to vouch for you on anything? Because God knows not just what you reveal to him. He knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. He knows why you're here today. He knows whether you put something in the offering or not. He knows whether you sang the songs. He knows whether you're grumbling. He knows, boy, it almost sounds like he's Santa Claus. <laughs> God is aware of all of these things. And if you call him to bear witness about you, What do you think God's going to testify? Oh, yeah, you're a pretty nice guy. Yeah, you did your best. Do you think God is going to be able to fudge a little bit? Do you think God's going to be able to make you look a little better than you are? Or do you think that he's going to basically say, you're a sinner. You have awful motives. You didn't do that very well. You're just trying to impress people. Or you're trying to deceive people. You see... God knows, and nobody can pull the wool over his eyes. And I think it's pretty dangerous to appeal to God to be your witness. But that's what he does. Paul wants God to validate what's going on in his heart and soul in these 17 expressions of I, 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 my, 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 and we. Paul says, it's not narcissistic. God will be witness to me. I want you to see what's going on. And so there's two things that God is a witness to. And uh, God is a witness. God is the one who I now obey. That's what we find in the first part of the verse. And then in the second verse, God is the one who I'm constantly petitioning. So if God is going to be a witness, God knows these two things. God knows that I'm obeying him. And God knows that I am constantly badgering him. Uh, Probably a better word is praying to him. I keep praying, I keep asking. Now, if you look at the text and you see it in that way, that this appeal to credibility, verses uh, 9 and 10, uh, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I keep mentioning you always in my prayers, and I keep asking him that somehow, by his will, by his favor, that I may now at last succeed and come to you. So I find that in this particular text, the appeal for credibility is to say, hey, God knows that I'm his servant. You can see that in verse 1. If you open up to Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, what does a servant do? Does a servant do whatever he wants? Does he come and go as he pleases? How many of you are a servant of Jesus Christ? Okay, pastor, I'll try not to go to meddling this quick. That's supposed to be in the fourth point application. But when you think about it, Paul is saying, God's my witness. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. When he says, jump, I say, how high? I am a willing servant of Jesus Christ. My spirit is known to God's spirit. You can know that in chapter 8. My spirit bears witness with with the Holy Spirit that I am one of the children of God. And he comforts me because he reminds me that he's my father, my Abba. And all that's going to come later in chapter 8. But in verse 5, he says... I'm a a witness that this obedient faith that I've been mentioning a few times to you... ...he says, that's true of me too. I have this faith now, and I'm obedient because of it. When God opened my eyes up, he changed my world. I have an an obedience that arises out of this powerful faith. And that's why in verse 16, which we haven't read yet, you can see... ...for I am not ashamed of this gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation. If you're a believer... And he's basically saying, hey, God is my witness. I'm following him. I'm obedient to him. Now, And I raise this issue from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. If you could bring those verses up, Acts 9, 1 and 2. Uh, he says, I've done a 180. I used to be walking like this. And then I've turned around and I'm walking like this. You know what I'm talking about? Paul's desires, his wishes, all the way back in chapter 9 of Acts... Acts chapter 9, you hear the story of his conversion. And as you find, he is breathing out all these threats. And it's not just words. It's not just somebody that is a bully that says, I'm going to take you down. We're going to meet you in the back alley. Or I'm going to do something tough. No, he actually is putting actions behind those tough words. The Bible says that well, he was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he got, went to the high priest. And the next verse even shows how he got permission to go to other parts outside of Jerusalem. Why? Just to take them out. He was going to get rid of the pollution. All of these people that are, that are, that are um, muddying the beauty of Judaism. And he went, wanted Keep it pure. Now, in order for you to get your hands around this, this guy had a zeal for that kind of purity. But up to this point, he's never met Jesus. Up to this point, he's read some things in the Old Testament and he's watched all the religious people. He's been schooled by Gamaliel, which is a great teacher. He learned a lot of things. Like I said, he could, he could probably pass a Bible quizzing thing and probably be first. He could probably win all the competitions because he's a smart guy. He studied, he understands these things, but he's never encountered the Christ. And he was breathing out threatenings so that if he found any, he would kill them. He would take them out. Now, why would he change? Why would he change? What caused his longing to be different? And he says, God is my witness. You know what changed? God spoke to him. God came down and regenerated him. Literally, he gave him blind eyes to show him how much he didn't see. And then he opened those blind eyes with Ananias and the word of God coming. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And he actually heard the word from Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's really quite interesting when you understand that he is identifying himself as an obedient one of Christ, and he says, God's my witness. And now, having established that he is a servant of Jesus Christ, then he says, but I'm all, God can also be a witness that I'm following God, but that as a servant of Christ, I have this desire, this longing. It's a really good longing. I am constantly petitioning for it. And if you look there in verse 10, he, God knows that I pray, God hears my requests, God hears my requests over and over and over again because I repetitively give them to him. You know, it's, it's like, a, it's almost like the string, you pull and I keep talking and I pull it again and I keep talking. God, this is what I want. Can you please give it to me? Can you please give it to me? Can you please give it to me? Have any of you ever prayed like that? I think some of you are praying like that. I know I'm praying like that. I'm asking for God to work out our agenda, to bring it to pass. And I've convinced myself that what I'm asking for is actually pretty good. Seems like it's pretty good, but he hasn't brought it to pass. And so when I look here, you can hear that, that God is hearing and he's hearing my longing. And that God is my witness that I've been asking and asking and asking and asking. And what has he been asking here? If you look at the text in verse 10, always in my prayers, I ask that somehow that God will... Let me come to you. That's what he keeps asking for. And so you really want to petition again and again and again. It makes me think of Luke 18, where you have the, uh, the woman who is petitioning the judge. I, mean, I read a little bit. As, he, as Jesus told him a, tar- a parable... ...how they ought to pray and not faint and not lose heart. He said... ...in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God or respected man... ...and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him. This verse 3. Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself... Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, she keeps petitioning me, I'll give in and I'll give her the justice that she's asking for so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. It makes me think of Paul, who's got God as a testament testifying. Yep, Paul's been praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And And he doesn't give up. That's pretty cool. The third thing that I want you to see in this sermon that follows along is found in the next verses, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. In these verses, we see the new longings that Paul has. You know, when we have all those, uh, those personal pronouns, I and my, you can just see them oozing through these verses where he's, there's new longings. And, and the interesting thing, these new desires, where do they come from? I've already tipped you off to it. They're coming from God working in him. And you can find multiple texts that validate this throughout the the New Testament, especially in Paul's epistles. He said, God is working in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. And so when you understand that God is working inside of you so that you will will it, so that means that you will want it, so it changes who you are. But let's look at these three longings that he mentions. There's a longing to be with God's people. There's a longing to be transparent with God's people. And there's a longing to obey the calling. That God has given to him. So if you quickly follow along with me, you can see there's a longing to be God with God's people. You've heard it again and again and again, but he, but he says, "I want to travel to Rome. I want to go visit. God gave me this desire. And so you give God the credit because the focus comes to God. He started the church there, and God now has put a desire on his heart to go to see you, to impart a strengthening gift to you, and to encourage you, which will actually encourage me too. It's kind of neat when you understand that. Where did he get this desire to go? I'm asking the same question to people that want to go to the Dominican Republic. Now, Sean did give us some alternative reasons. He said March is one of the best times for weather. But why are we going to the Dominican? Why did we just purchase tickets this week for, for a Um, more than 15 people to go. It wasn't so that we could bake in the sun, S-U-N. It was so that we could lift up the S-O-N by our words, by our deeds, and with our passions. So that the wonders of God's grace in Christ might be known. He wants to travel to Rome. He wants to see them. He wants to have eyeball to eyeball contact with them. And it's really kind of interesting when you understand this. He says they are far away right now but I am willing to come. I want to see them have an obedient faith just like I have. Verse 5 repeated again. He says I care. I can't let it go. I have a sense from God about this. That I should be doing it. I can't turn it off. It's almost like a magnet that keeps pulling me. I just want to go. I just have to go. It's interesting that if you go back and if, you, if, if, if I leap forward in Romans chapter 12, what does he say about uh, the assembling, or not of assembling, but of, of the fellowship that we should have in the church? If you go to Romans 12, 18, he says, As much as is possible, live at peace with those that you live with, but especially those who are of the household of God? There ought to be peace. There ought to be a, it ought to be something you don't want to miss. You want to be there no matter what. You have this longing, this desire, this magnet that draws you in because you love the saints. Paul says, I long, I long to be with God's people in Rome. Now, the second longing that he has here that I believe God gave him was a longing to be transparent with God's people. He said, he said, I have to prove this to you. He says, I want to reveal and not have it hidden from you. If you're following along, you can see in verse, 12, or verse 11... For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift... ...that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith... ...both yours and mine. And, I, and this is verse 13 where our text is. I, I want to be transparent. I do not want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be misinformed. I don't want you to be listening to the wrong voices. He says, brothers... He's treating them like the family of God. He says, I want you to get the right things. And so this is kind of interesting, this longing to be transparent with them. He says, I've often desired it. It was my intention all along, and it has been prevented. This is the transparency that he's given to the people in Rome. He says, God's my witness, but I I, I long for you to understand. That the reason is not working out. It's not because it's of me not wanting to come. And it's because I've been often trying. I've been trying to reschedule this. I'm trying to make it happen. But I, I haven't been able to make it come to pass. He says, it was intended. This is my longing and it's personal. I, I have a desire to see a harvest. A harvest. And I, he says, but it has been hindered. I've been prevented. Now, I don't know about you, but that's often how God's sovereign will works. You may have a good desire to do something good, but God says, not now, not yet. Open to the fact that God could make it happen if he wanted to. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had said, if God wants to do this, then he'll get us through the fiery furnace, and if he doesn't, I'm still going to trust God. You see, this is what James was teaching in chapter 4. If the Lord wills it, then it will take place. But the key longing that blows me away here, which, which is where we need to apply, is the longing to obey the calling. The longing to obey this calling. Now, and this is where you find the word obligation. If you have your Bibles open, you can see it in verse 14. I am under an obligation. How can Christians be under obligation? Aren't we free? Galatians, stand fast in the liberty that you have in Christ. Don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't be be anchored to something that's going to hold you back from being able to, to have a great life. No, he says, the longing I have is an obligation. And this obligation, I want you to understand it from Galatians 6, 4. It is an obligation to reap. Now, how does somebody reap something? It should be pretty much a no-brainer. If you're going to reap a harvest, what has to happen before that? I hear some of you thinking. I hear thinking going on. You've got to sow if you're going to reap. Galatians chapter 6 says you're not going to reap if you don't sow. And so there's this sense of saying that just like Jesus taught the illustration of the seeds that were thrown out. Some fell on good ground, some on the street, uh, some found on, on stones. You know, but there was sowing that was taking place. And then the harvest came later. In due season you shall reap. Okay, now Paul is saying, I have an obligation to reap because this is what God has called me to do. And if you understand that in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 to 17, this is the actual calling that he got. He says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument. This is speaking to Ananias about Paul. He. He is to carry my name before the Gentiles and before kings and even before the Jews, the children of Israel. And so you find that part of the obligation that he has to sow is that he is supposed to go and then he is also to preach. The obligation is twofold. It sounds just like a missionary sermon. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Those are the two things that he's obliged to do. He's obligated. Why does Paul have to do this? Because God called him. God set him apart from that trip to to Damascus. God knocked him off the high horse. And God says, not your agenda, mine. I've got a plan for you that's going to take you to Gentiles. And it's going to take you to kings. And it's even going to take you to Jews. And he says, that's my plan. That's what you're going to do. And now Paul is an obedient servant to that faith. He has received the call. And now he's obligated to go sow these seeds. He wants to impart a gift. He wants to preach the gospel. And that's what you find here in the text in in, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's passing it on to Timothy. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all complete patience and teaching. In other words, in order to sow these seeds of the gospel, get out there and proclaim them. How do you think, again, that the, the, the people knew about the faith of the people in Rome? oh yeah, they just hid themselves in, in the catacombs and nobody knew about them, right? No, they were out there proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's why when I look at this obligation to sow before the reaping, uh, he, the, by this calling to go to various Gentiles who are, who are there. And so it's interesting. He was Greek speakers and non-Greek speakers, educated and uneducated. He calls some of them barbarians, but if you go to the other translation by Luke, it's basically non-Greek speakers. So when Paul is going out into this world, yeah, he can speak the, the known Greek, but he can also speak to other people who don't know Greek, people who are considered barbarian or further outsiders. It's so cool. He has this obligation of his soul. He is longing to obey this calling, and that's why he gets out there. In Romans chapter 10, he's going to explain it a little bit later for, if the people will pay attention. Let me read Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17 how then will they call on Jesus in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Jesus of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear about Jesus without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless God sends them? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who do go and preach the good news. And he said, verse 17, so faith, In other words, the ability to believe and to rest in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ being proclaimed. It is so cool when you see how it all comes together. And this is the opening words to this great epistle. Paul is saying, these are the things that I'm longing to do. So how does this work for you and me? Does God do things differently now or does he still do the same? Jesus' words that, we've been, that you'll hear all throughout this year. Come unto me, all ye that labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, how can you have rest if you have an obligation? How can you have a rest if you've got this yearning that you can't let go of, that makes you be a prayer warrior, that keeps you on your knees? Lord, will you do this today? Lord, will you do this tomorrow? Lord, will you do it? Let me do it. Jesus said later in Matthew 11, the burden I give you, the yoke that you're going to be linked to is, is an easy yoke. My burden is light. And the reason why it's not so heavy is because you don't have to perform it. When you're linked together with Christ, it's Christ in you, the work of glory. Christ is, is you know, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But he says uh, in Galatians chapter 2, he says for, for me to live is Christ and and the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, I'm living by faith. This faith is something that motivates me. This is a faith that gives me a longing to get up out of bed in the morning and do something. This is a faith that engages the world. My yoke is easy. The world's yoke is impossible. There is no rest for those who do not have Christ because you cannot save yourself. You cannot lay up treasure in heaven either. You cannot, without faith, do anything to please God, Hebrews eleven six. 6. So this is how it works. According to Paul in Philippians 1, he says God starts the work. Okay, that's, that's what we know. Then God's grace is extended to you further, where it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and, 8 and 9, for by grace you're being saved. It's through faith, and that faith is not even of yourselves. The faith is a gift from God. It's not by your working. It's not by your performing. It's not by the treadmill of running the race of religion. It's a gift from God. And that's why he says in Romans 10, grace is also extended that God sends a preacher. He sends somebody into your world with the good news. Somebody with pretty feet. It doesn't say whether they stink or not. But it does tell you that God's design is to take the gospel to the ends of the world through people like you and me. And how do we end up going to do that? He calls us. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This is a faith that works. It is an obedient faith. It opens your eyes up to see and it empowers your life to do. It's a new creation, as it says in 2 Chronicles or 2nd Corinthians. He says, Behold, all is passed away. All the stuff that's behind you is now all you become a new creation. And as he says in Philippians, you press on now instead of looking back. You press on for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You have an obligation because of your faith. You see the truth. You see what's valuable. You see what is meaningful. And you can see all the rest. It's like wood, hay, and stubble. That'll be like the chaff that blows away. His Holy Spirit communicates with us. As the word of God is proclaimed as we were studying in the confession this morning, it takes the Spirit of God to hear, to take the, the special revelation that comes through the missionaries, whether they're reading the Word, whether they're preaching it, whether they're living it out before you, they're modeling a Christian life before you, the Holy Spirit takes that and opens up blinds' eyes. He calls us, comforts us, guides us, convicts us, controls us. And that's why if you go to 2 Corinthians 5, look at the first words: 2nd Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us. It controls us. Brothers and sisters, what do you long for? What do you long for? What do you really want out of 2023? Not that I'm trying to make it so spiritual and pious, but I hope your answer is, I want what God wants me to be doing. He's called me to do something. He's called you to do something. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to be doing these things, which God has predestined or foreordained that we should be doing. And today I'm standing here as a preacher. I'm equipping the saints to what? So that you'll sleep well this afternoon because you had to endure a long sermon? Well, you are supposed to rest on the Lord's day. I'm to equip the saints so that the saints can do what God's called you to do. And when it's all said and done, when the final trumpet sound, and when Jesus comes back for us, he, we're to be about our Heavenly Father's business. We're supposed to be going out into this world as we're living our lives. Some, for some, that is going to go overseas, and for some, that is going to just be going out of your comfort zone. And you're going to tell people about Jesus because when you lift up Jesus and God is Paul's witness he should be yours he can draw all kinds of people to himself John chapter 6 let me pray our heavenly father as we gather here today we are examining the motives of our hearts and we can see as we've glint, had a deeper dive into what's going on in Paul's motives that man he was not afraid he was not afraid to call God as his witness. He sold out for Jesus. And he is willing not just to travel and to see these people, but Paul is even willing to die for the cause of the gospel, which history says he did. Lord, I pray that as we examine our own lives these days, that we might have our passions, our desires, our longings to conform to your agenda. May we always be quick to say, not my will, but thine be done. And if the Lord wills it, then we'll do this. We'll come and go, we'll buy and sell, we'll be there or we won't be there, but it'll all be in accord with your agenda. Lord, it's pretty amazing that the people in Rome got to see the heart of their pastor because they got to see how God had changed him and how God was going to change them. We thank you for this good news that we find in the book of Romans, that we find in your word, the Bible, and I pray that we might leave this place refreshed and encouraged to be able to go on and and live out these applications. And Lord, we pray that you would stop some of the hindrances so that we might be able to see these things that you put on our hearts come to pass, even as history says that Paul was able to do in Rome.